21. Education after listening to his brief telephonic conversations with a series of unseen ladies, that the conclusion was premature. Though there were vacant rooms in several private houses, strange stray males were not desired as lodgers, concerned as we were over our plight. My companion and I could not help being aware that a young lady who had been standing at the desk when we came in and had since remained there, was taking kindly interest in the situation, nor, for the matter of that, could we help being aware, also, that she was very pretty in her soft black dress and corsage of Narcissus. She did not speak to us, indeed. She hardly honored us with a glance, but, despite her sweet circumspection, we sensed in some subtle way that she was sorry for us, and were cheered thereby. After a time, when the clerk seemed to have reached the end of his resources, the young lady hesitantly ventured some suggestions as to other houses where rooms might possibly be had. These suggestions she addressed entirely to the clerk who, upon receiving them, did more telephoning. Have you tried Mrs. I. Shelberger? The young lady asked him, after several more failures, he had not, but promptly did so. His conversation with Mrs. I. Shelberger started promisingly, but presently we heard him make the damning admission he had been compelled repeatedly to make before, Mumber man, it's two men. Then, just as the last hope seemed to be fading, our angel of mercy spoke again. Wait, she put in impulsively, tell her tell her I recommend them. Thus informed. Mrs. I. Shelberger became compliant, but when the details were arranged, and we turned to thank our benefactor, she had fled. Mrs. I. Shelberger's house was but a few blocks distant from the Gilmer. She installed us into large, comfortable rooms, remarking, as we entered, that we had better hurry, as we were already late. Late for what? One of us asked. Didn't you come for the senior dramatics? Senior dramatics where? At the IINC? What is the IINC? That this question a look of doubt, if not suspicion, crossed the lady's face. Where are you all from? She demanded. The statement that we came from New York seemed to explain satisfactorily our ignorance of the IINC. Evidently Mrs. I. Shelberger expected little of New Yorkers. The IINC, she explained, was the Mississippi Industrial Institute and College, formerly known as the Female College, a state institution for young women and the senior dramatics were even then in progress in the college chapel, just up the street, to the chapel. Therefore, my companion and I repaired as rapidly as might be, guided thither by frequent sounds of applause, from among the seniors standing guard in cap and gown at the chapel door. The quick artistic eye of my companion selected a brown and auburn-haired young goddess as the one from whom tickets might most appropriately be bought, nor did he display thrift in the transaction. Instead of buying modest quarter seats he magnificently purchased the 50-cent kind. The dazzling ticket seller, transformed to usher, now led us into the crowded auditorium and down an aisle. A few rows from the stage she stopped, and, fastening a frigid gaze upon two hapless young women who were seated some distance in from the passageway, bade them emerge and yield their place to us. Of course we instantly protested, albeit in whispers, as the play was going on. But the beautiful Olympian lightly brushed aside our objections. They don't belong here, she declared loftily. They're freshmen and they only bought quarter seats. Then, as the guilty pair seemed to hesitate, she summoned them with a compelling gesture and the command, Come out! At this they arose meekly enough. Whereupon we redoubled our protests, but to no purpose. The titian-tinted creature was relentless. Our pleas figured no more in her scheme of things than if they had been babbling sin in a known tongue. To add to our discomfiture, 
a large part of the audience seemed to have perceived the nature of our dilemma, and was giving us amused attention. It was a crisis, and in a crisis especially one in which a member of the so-called general sex is involved I have learned to look to my companion. He understands women. He has often told me so. And now, by his action, he proved it. What he did was to turn and flee, and I fled with him, nor did we pause until we were safely hidden away in humble twenty-five cent seats at the rear of the chapel, in the shadow of the overhanging gallery. It is not my intention to write an extended criticism of the performance. For one thing, I witnessed only a fragment of it, and for another, though I once acted for a brief period as dramatic critic on a New York newspaper, I was advised by my managing editor to give up dramatic criticism, and I have followed his advice. The scene evidently represented a room, its walls made of red screens behind which rose the lofty pipes of the chapel organ. On a pedestal at one side stood a bust of the Venus de Milo while on the other hung an engraving of a familiar picture which I believe is called, The Fates, and which has the appearance of having been painted by someone or other like Leighton or Bouderia or Harold Bellwright. After we had given some attention to the play my companion remarked that, from the dialect, he judged it to be, Uncle Tom's Cabin. I had been told, however, that for certain reasons, Uncle Tom's Cabin, is never played in the South, I therefore asked the young man in front of me what play it was, he replied that it was Booth Tarking and Harry Leon Wilson's comedy, The Man from Home, and as he made the statement openly, I feel that I am violating no confidence in repeating what he said especially since his declaration was supported by the program which he showed me. He was a pleasant young man, perceiving that I was a stranger. He volunteered the additional information that the masculine roles, as well as the feminine ones, were being played by girls, and I trust that I will not seem to be boasting of perspicacity when I declare that there had already entered my mind a suspicion that such was indeed the case. Behold them. Gaze upon the character called Daniel Voorhees Pike. See what long strides he takes, and with what pretty tiny feet. Observe the manliness with which he thrusts his pink little hands deep in the pockets of his or somebody's pantaloons. Look at the Grand Duke Vasily of Russia. His sweet oval face and rosy mouth partly obscured by mustache and goatee of a most strange holiness. Observe the ineradicable daintiness of the Honorable Helmerick Street Obine. But more particularly attend to that villain of helpless loveliness. The Earl of Hawcastle. The frightful life which, it is indicated, the Earl has led, leaves no telltale marks upon his blooming countenance. His only facial disfigurement consists in a mustache which, by reason of its grand ducal lenateness, seems to hint at a mysterious relationship between the British and Russian noblemen. Take note, moreover, of the outlines of the players. If ever Earl was belted it was this one. If ever Duke in evening dress revealed delectable convexities of figure, it was this Duke. If ever worthy male from Indiana spoke in a soprano voice and was live, alluring, and recurvous, she was Daniel Voorhees Pike. The young woman seated near us described to her escort the personal characteristics of the various young ladies on the stage, and when we heard her call one girl who played in a betreasured part, a perfect darling, we echoed inwardly the sentiment, all were darlings, and this especial, perfect darling, appeared as well to be a, perfect 36. The Earl was my undoing, at a critical point in the unfolding of the plot there was talk of his having been connected with a scandal in St. Petersburg, this he attempted to deny and though I am unable to quote the exact words of his denial, the sound of it lingers sweetly in my memory, nor would the exact words, could I give them, convey, in print, the quality of what was said, for the Earl, 
and all the rest, spoke in the soft, melodious tones of Mississippi, while you all fess and run he for, this moaning, that, perhaps, conveys some sense of a line he spoke on entering, and when, in reply, one of the others mentioned the scandal at St. Petersburg, the flavor of the Earl's retort, as its cooing tones remain with me, was this, what, honey, what you all mean him and run about St. Petersburg, I reckon you don't know what you talking about, Don Evil was in that town in all Marbone days, what followed I am unable to relate, for the Earl's speech caused me to become emotional, and my companion, after informing me severely that I was making myself conspicuous, removed me from the chapel, the Auburn goddess was still on duty at the door as we went out, advancing, she placed in each of our hands a quarter, I regret to say that, in my shaken state, I misinterpreted this action, oh, no, please, I protested, fearing that she thought we had not enjoyed the performance, and was therefore returning our money, it really wasn't bad at all, we're only going because we had an engagement, be quiet, interrupted my companion in a savage undertone, jerking me along by the arm, it's only a rebate on the seats, and without allowing me a chance to set myself right he dragged me out, chapter xli old tales and a new game mrs i shelberger supplied us nearly with a place to sleep, for meals she referred us to a lady who lived a few doors up the street, but when in the morning we went, full of hunger and of hope, to the house of this lady, we were coldly informed that breakfast was over, and were recommended to the Bell Cafe, downtown, my companion and I are not of that robust breed which enjoys a bracing walk before its morning coffee, and the fact that the streets of Columbus charmed us, as we now saw them for the first time by daylight, is proof enough of their quality, there is but little appetite for beauty in an empty stomach, the streets were splendidly wide, and bordered with fine old trees, and the houses, each in its own lawn, each with its vines and shrubs, were full of the suggestion of an easy-going home life and an informal hospitality. Most of them were a frame and in their architecture illustrated the decadence of the 80s and 90s, but here or there was a fine old brick homestead with a noble column portico, or a formal Georgian house, disposed among beautiful trees and gardens and sheltered from the street by an ancient hedge of box. So, though Columbus Island as I had indicated, not too easily reached by rail, and though, as I have further indicated, Walks before breakfast are not to my taste. I am compelled to say that for both the journey and the walk I felt repaid by the sight of some of the old houses the Baldwin House, the W.D. Humphreys House, the J.O. Banks House, the old McLaren House, the Kinebrew House, the Thomas Hardy House, the J.M. Morgan House, with its garden of lilies and roses, its giant magnolia trees and its huge camellia bushes, and most of all, perhaps, for its Georgian beauty the mellow tone of its old brick, its rich tangle of southern growths, and its associations, the venerable mansion of the late General Stephen D. Lee, CSA now the property of the latter's only son, Mr. Blue A. Lee, General Counsel of the Illinois Central Railroad, and a resident of Chicago, it was apropos of our visit to the Lee House that I was told of a dramatic and touching example of the rebirth of enmity between North and South, Stephen D. Lee it was who, as a young artillery officer attached to the staff of General Beauregard, transmitted the actual order to fire on Fort Sumter, the shot which began the war. Two years later, having been promoted to the rank of Lieutenant General, the same Stephen Dooley participated in the defense of Vicksburg against the assaults of Porter's gunboats from the river and of Grant's armies, which hemmed in the hilled city on landward side, until at last, 
on the 4th of July, 1863, the place was surrendered, making Grant's fame secure. Years after, when the government of the United States accepted a statue of General Stephen D. Lee, to be placed upon the battleground of Vicksburg now a national park it was the late General Frederick Dent Grant, son of the capturer of the city, who journeyed thither to unveil the memorial to his father's former foe, and by a peculiarly gracious and fitting set of circumstances it came about that when, in April last, the 95th anniversary of the birth of U.S. Grant was celebrated in his native city, Galena, Illinois. It was Blue Ailey, only son of the general taken by Grant at Vicksburg, who journeyed to Galena and there in a memorial address, returned the earlier compliment paid to the memory of his own father by Grant's son. Columbus may perhaps appreciate the charm of its old homes, but there is evidence to show that it did not appreciate certain other weather-worn structures of great beauty. I have seen photographs of an old Baptist church with a fine and not at all Baptist-looking portico and fluted columns which was torn down to make room for the present stupidly commonplace Baptist Church, and I have seen pictures of the beautiful old town hall which was recently supplanted by an ignorantly ordinary town building of yellow pressed brick. The destruction of these two early buildings represents an irreparable loss to Columbus, and it is to be hoped that the town will someday be sufficiently enlightened to know that this is true and to regret that it did not restore and enlarge them instead of tearing them down. Until a decade or two ago Columbus had so far as I can learn, but four streets possessing names, Main Street, Market Street, College Street, and Catfish Alley, all other streets being known as, the street that Mrs. Billups, or Mrs. Sykes, or Mrs. Humphreys, or Mrs. Someone Else lives on, Market and Main are business streets at least they are so where they cross and, like the other streets, are wide, they are lined with brick buildings few if any of them more than three stories in height, and it was in one of these buildings, on Main Street, that we found the Bell Cafe advertised as, the most exclusive cafe in the state, being in search of breakfast rather than exclusiveness, we did not sit at one of the tables, but at the long lunch counter, where we were quickly served, after breakfast we felt strong enough to look at picture postcards, and to that end visited first, Cheap Joe's, and then the shop of Mr. Devy Buys, where newspapers, magazines, sporting goods, cameras, and all such things, are sold, having viewed postcards picturing such scenes as, Main Street looking north, the First Baptist Church, and, Steamer America, Tom Bigby River, we were about to depart, when our attention was drawn to a telephonic conversation which had started between Mr. Devy Bizes clerk and a customer who was thinking of going in for the game of lawn tennis, the half of the conversation which was audible to us proved entertaining, and we dallied, eavesdropping, the clerk began by recommending tennis, Yes, he said, that would be very nice. Everybody is playing tennis now, but that got him into trouble. For after a pause he said, I'm sorry I can't tell you everything about it. I don't play tennis myself. Al could tell you, though, he plays. Then, after a much longer pause, well, ma'am, you see, in a game of lawn tennis everybody owns their own racket. At this juncture at all, thin man in what is known excepting at Palm Beach as a Palm Beach suit, entered the shop and the clerk asked his inquisitor to hold the wire while he made some inquiries. After a long conversation with the new arrival he returned to the telephone and resumed his explanation. Well, you see, they had a net, and one stands on one side and one on the other yes. Ma'am, there can be two on each side and one serves. What? Yes. He hits the ball over the net and it has to go in the opposite court on the other side, 
And then if that one doesn't send it back yes, the court is marked with lines Y. That counts 15. The next count is 30. What? Munger man. I don't know why they count that way. Munger it's just the way they do in lawn tennis. If your opponent has nothing, why? They call that love. Yes. That's it L-O-V-E just the same as when anybody's in love. Munger man. I don't know why. So that's the way they count. Munger man. The lines are boundaries. You have to stand in a certain place and hit the ball in a certain place. No. I don't mean that way. You've got to hit it so it lands in a certain place, and the one that's playing against you has to hit it back in a certain place. And if it goes in some other place, then you can't play it anymore. Oh. No. Not all day. I mean that ends that part, and you start over. You just keep on doing like that. But though it was apparent that he considered his explanation complete, the lady at the other end of the wire was evidently not yet satisfied. And as he began to struggle with more questions we left the shop and went to the Gilmer Hotel to see if any mail had come for us. The Gilmer was built by slave labor some years before the war, and was in its day considered a very handsome edifice. Nor is it today an unsatisfactory hotel for a town of the size of Columbus. Its old brick walls are sturdy, and its rooms are of a fine spaciousness. Downstairs it has been somewhat remodeled, but the large parlor on the second floor as much as it was in the beginning. Even to the great mirrors and the carved furniture imported more than 60 years ago from France. Most of the doors still had the old locks. And the window cords originally installed were of such a quality that they had not had to be renewed. The Gilmer was still new when the Battle of Shiloh was fought. And several thousand of the wounded were brought to Columbus. The hotel and various other buildings, including that of the former female institute, were converted into hospitals. As were also many private houses in the town. Though there was never fighting at Columbus, the end of the war found some 1500 soldiers' graves in Friendship Cemetery, perhaps twascore of the number being those of Federals. The citizens were, at this time, too poor and too broken in spirit to erect memorials, but several ladies of Columbus made it their custom to visit the cemetery and care for the graves of the Confederate dead. This movement, started by individuals Miss Matt Moratton, Mrs. J.T. Fonden, and Mrs. Green T. Hill was soon taken up by other ladies of the place and resulted in a determination to make the decoration of soldiers' graves an annual occurrence. In an old copy of the Mississippi Index, published at the time, may be found an account of the solemn march of the women, young and old, to the cemetery, on April 25, 1866 one year after Robert E. Lee's surrender and of the decoration of the graves not only of Confederate but of Federal soldiers. It is the proud boast of Columbus that this occasion constituted the first celebration of the now National Decoration Day or, as it is more properly called, Memorial Day. It should perhaps be said here that Columbus, Georgia, disputes the claim of Columbus, Mississippi, as to Memorial Day. In the Georgia city it is contended that the idea of decorating soldiers' graves originated with Miss Lizzie Rutherford, later Mrs. Roswell Ellis, of that place. The inscription of Mrs. Ellis Monument in Linwood Cemetery, Columbus, Georgia, states that the idea of Memorial Day originated with her. It seems clear, however, that the same idea occurred to women in both cities simultaneously, and that, while the actual celebration of the day occurred in Columbus, Mississippi, one day earlier than in Columbus, Georgia, the ladies of the latter city may have been first in suggesting that Memorial Day be not a local celebration but one in which the whole South should take part. The incident of the first decoration of the graves of Union as well as Confederate soldiers appears, 
however, to belong entirely to Columbus, Mississippi, and it is certain that this exhibition of magnanimity inspired F.W. Finch to write the famous poem, The Blue and the Gray, for when that poem was first published in the Atlantic Monthly, for September, 1867, it carried the following headnote, The Women of Columbus, Miss, animated by noble sentiments, had shown themselves impartial in their offerings to the memory of the dead. They strewed flowers on the graves of the Confederate and of the National soldiers. This episode becomes the more touching by reason of the fact that the Columbus lady who initiated the movement to place flowers on the Union graves, at a time when such action was sure to provoke much criticism in the South, was Mrs. Augusta Murdoch Sykes, herself the widow of a Confederate soldier. So with an equal splendor the morning sun rays fall, with a touch impartially tender on the blossoms blooming for all, under the sod and the dew. Waiting the judgment day, brightered with gold the blue, mellowed with gold the gray. Chapter XLII Out of the long ago while local historians attempt to tangle up the exploration of DeSoto with the early history of this region, saying that DeSoto entered the state of Mississippi near the site of Columbus, and that he probably crossed the Tombigbee River at this point. Their conclusions are largely the result of guesswork, but it is not guesswork to say that when the Kentucky and Tennessee volunteers going to the aid of Andrew Jackson, at New Orleans, in 1814, cut a military road from Tuscumbia, Alabama, to the Gulf, they passed over the site of Columbus, for the road they cut remains today one of the principal highways of the district as well as one of the chief streets of the town, more clearly defined, of course, are memories of the Civil War and of Reconstruction, for there are many present-day residents of Columbus who remember both, among these is one of those wonderful, sweet, high-spirited, and altogether fascinating ladies whom we call old only because their hair is white and because a number of years have passed over their heads one of those glorious young old ladies in which the South is, I think, richer than any other single section of the world. It was our good fortune to meet Mrs. John Billups, and to see some of her treasured relics among them the flag carried through the battles of Monterey and Buena Vista by the 1st Mississippi Regiment, of which Jefferson Davis was colonel and in which her husband was a lieutenant, and a crutch used by General Nathan Bedford Forrest when he was housed at the Billups residence in Columbus, recovering from a wound, but better yet it was to hear Mrs. Billups herself tell of the times when the house in which she lived as a young woman, at Holly Springs, Mississippi, was used as headquarters by General Grant, Mrs. Billups, who was a Miss Govan, was educated in Philadelphia and Wilmington, and had many friends and relatives in the North. Her mother was Mrs. Mary Godon of Holly Springs, and her brother's wife, who resided with the Godons during the war, was a Miss Hawks, a daughter of the Ref. Francis L. Hawks, then rector of Street Thomas's Church in New York. All were, however, good Confederates. Mrs. Godon's house at Holly Springs was being used as a hospital when Grant and his army marched, and resisted, into the town, and Mrs. Godon, with her daughters and daughter-in-law had already moved to the residence of Colonel Harvey Walter, which is to this day a show place, and is now the residence of Mr. and Mrs. Oscar Johnson of St. Louis Mrs. Johnson being Colonel Walter's daughter. This house was selected by Grant as his headquarters, and he resided there for a considerable period. It seemed a mighty long time, says Mrs. Billups, with the general was Mrs. Grant and their son Jesse, as well as Mrs. Grant's Negro maid, Julia, who, Mrs. Grant told Mrs. Billups, had been given to her, as a slave, by her father, Colonel Dent. Mrs. Billups was under the impression that Julia was, at that time, 
still a slave. At all events, she was treated as a slave. We all liked the Grants, Mrs. Billups said. He had very little to say, but she was very sociable and used to come in and sit with us a great deal. One day the general took his family and part of his army and went to Oxford, Mississippi, leaving Colonel Murphy in command at Holly Springs. While Grant was away our Confederate General Van Dorn made a raid on Holly Springs, capturing the town, tearing up the railroad, and destroying the supplies of the Northern Army. He just dashed in did his work, and dashed out again. Some of his men came to the house and, knowing that it was Grant's headquarters, wished to make a search. My mother was entirely willing they should do so, but she knew that there were no papers in the house, and assured the soldiers that if they did search they would find nothing but Mrs. Grant's personal apparel which she was sure they would not wish to disturb. That satisfied them and they went away. Next morning back came Grant with his army. He rode up on horseback, preceded by his bodyguard, and I remember that he looked worn and worried. As he dismounted he saw my sister-in-law. Mrs. Eaton Hugo Vaughn the one who was Miss Hawks standing on the gallery above. He called up to her and said, Mrs. Govon, I suppose my sword is gone. What sword, General? She asked him. The sword that was presented to me by the army. I left it in my wife's closet. Mrs. Govon was thunderstruck. I didn't know it was there. She said, Oh, I should have been tempted to send it to General Van Dorn if I had known that it was there. The next morning. As a reward to us for not having known that his sword was there, the general gave us a protection paper explicitly forbidding soldiers to enter the house. Of course the Govans, like all other citizens of invaded districts in the south, buried their family plate before the Yankees came. Shortly after this had been accomplished as they thought, secretly the Govans were preparing to entertain friends at dinner when a Negro boy who helped about the dining room remarked innocently, in the presence of Mrs. Govan and several of her servants, Mrs. ain't going to have no fine table tonight. K's all the silver's done buried in the strawsy patch. He had seen the old gardener planting the plate. Thereafter it was quietly decided in the family that the Negroes had better know nothing about the location of buried treasure. That night, therefore, some gentlemen went out to the strawberry patch, disinterred the silver, carried it to Colonel Walter's place, and there buried it under the front walk. And after Grant came, said Mrs. Billups, we used to laugh as we watched the Union sentries marching up and down that walk, right over our plate. Among the items not already mentioned, of which Columbus is proud, are the facts that she has supplied to cabinet members within the past decade J.N. Dickinson, Taft's Secretary of War, and T.W. Gregory, Wilson's Attorney General and that Jake and O. Johnson, breeder of famous American saddle horses, has recently come from Kentucky and established his Emerald Chief Stock Farm in Lowndes County a short distance from the town, but items like these, let me be frank to say, do not appeal to me as do the picturesque old stories which cling about such a town, their island for instance, the story of Alexander Keith McClung, famous about the middle of the last century as a duelist and dandy, McClung was a Virginian by birth, but while still a young man took up his residence in Columbus, his father studied law under Thomas Jefferson and was later conspicuous in Kentucky politics, and his mother was a sister of Chief Justice John Marshall. In 1828, at the age of 17, McClung became a midshipman in the Navy, and though he remained in the service but a year, he managed during that time to fight a duel with another midshipman, who wounded him in the arm. At 18 he fought a duel near Frankfort, Kentucky, with his cousin James W. Marshall. His third duel was with a lawyer named Allen, 
who resided in Jackson, Mississippi. Allen was the challenger as it is said McClung took pains to see that his adversaries usually were, so that he might have the choice of weapons, for he was very skillful with the pistol. In his duel with Allen he specified that each was to be armed with four pistols and a boy knife, that they were to start eighty paces apart, and upon signal were to advance, firing at will, at about thirty paces he shot Allen through the brain. His fourth duel was with John Manethe, of Vicksburg, and was fought in 1839, on the river bank, near that city, with rifles at thirty yards. Some idea of the spirit in which dueling was taken in those days may be gathered from the fact that the Vicksburg rifles, of which Manethe was an officer, turned out in full uniform to see the fight. However they were doubly disappointed, for it was Manethe and not McClung who died. It is said that a short time after this, one of Manethe's brothers challenged McClung, who killed this brother, and so on until he had killed all seven male members of the Manethe family. McClung fought gallantly in the Mexican War as lieutenant colonel of the 1st Mississippi Regiment, of which Jefferson Davis was colonel. Though he remained always a bachelor it is said that he had many love affairs. He was a hard drinker, a flowery speaker, and a writer of sentimental verse. It is said that in his later life he was exceedingly unhappy, brooding over the lives he had taken in duels 14 in all. His last poem was an invocation to death, ending with the line, Oh, death, come soon, come soon. Shortly after writing it he shaved, dressed himself with the most scrupulous care, and shot himself. This occurred March 23, 1855, in the Eagle Hotel, North Capitol Street, Jackson, Mississippi. To preserve the neatness and cleanliness of his attire after death should have ensued, says Colonel R.W. Banks. It is said he poured a little water upon the floor to ascertain the direction the blood would take when it flowed from the wound. Then placing himself in proper position, so that the gore would run from and not toward his body. He placed the pistol to the right temple, pulled the trigger and death quickly followed. Chapter XLIB The girl he left behind him on our second evening in Columbus my companion and I returned to the house, near our domicile, to which we had been sent by Mrs. I. Shelberger for our meals, but owing to a misunderstanding as to the dinner hour we found ourselves again too late. The family and the teachers from the IINC who took meals there, were already coming out from dinner to sit and, 